And this morning's reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 12, reading from verse 18 to 29. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to to such a voice speaking words, so that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, But now he has promised, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ian, very much indeed. Um, Can I encourage us, please, to have our Bibles open in front of us this morning? Um, There is going to be a little bit of page turning, and it will be a great help to me if you're following along. Um, But uh, let's, uh, let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. 
and everything that you're teaching us in this series about the church. And now we pray that you would banish every distracting thought from our minds and teach us how to worship you acceptably with reverence and awe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Whenever uh, we're facing an important decision, uh, we do want the best advice we can possibly get. We want to listen to someone who really knows what they're talking about. And uh, that applies as much to the church as any other sphere of life. Uh, Tim Savage pastored Camelback Bible Church in Arizona for 30 years. He has lots and lots of experience of life in the local church, and that's why he's a regular speaker at Gospel Coalition conferences. I'd like to begin this morning by sharing with you what he has to say about the significance of the local church for men and women today. This is what he says, quote, People are weary, marooned in darkness with little real contentment, and yet they trudge onward, seeking solace in anything that might distract them from their empty lives. A TV screen, a beer, a relationship. But when these fail, desperation sets in, and they begin to wish, even to pray, that someone would draw their attention to something beautiful, something substantial, anything that might banish despair and ignite hope. Well, there is something that proclaims just such a deliverance. It's something so radiant that it actually transforms its surroundings. It is the body of Christ. To catch a glimpse of the local church in action, whose members interact lovingly with each other, pouring out their God-given gifts into each other's lives, showcasing the love of Christ himself, is to witness more light than the human mind can absorb. It is to see what society lacks. A love without which souls wither and die, a love for which all people passionately crave, whether they know it or not. It is the love found exclusively in the local church. End quote. Well, this is the third in our series of five studies in which we're trying to answer the question, why church? And I should say that in this series, the audience that we have in mind is not primarily the unbeliever. Yes, we are, of course, here, passionately concerned to share the gospel with the unbeliever. But in our series, we're talking first and foremost to Christians, and especially to those Christians who haven't committed themselves to a local church and perhaps see no reason to do so. Uh, they, might, they may like uh, what they know about Jesus. They may read their Bibles regularly. Uh, perhaps they enjoy listening to celebrity speakers. They're moved 
by Christian music, but they can't see where the local church fits in their lives. So in the series, we want to show you that the local church is the place where God is remaking a broken world. And I want to persuade you that being committed to a local church and building deep relationships with the people in it is actually the best thing you can do with your life. And in order to do that, what we're doing is we're taking a journey through the whole Bible. And on this journey, we're tracing the theme of scattering as a sign of God's judgment and gathering as a sign of God's rescue. Uh, Two weeks ago, we visited the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament, and we saw the scattering that took place there is, is a picture of a world that is broken and divided by human pride and selfishness. And we realized, we said at the time, that unless God rebuilds our broken world, it won't happen. We won't do it ourselves because our pride and our selfishness always get in the way. And then last week we looked at the assembly of Israel in the Old Testament, and in particular the assembly at Mount Sinai. Of course there are lots of other assemblies in the Old Testament, especially at Jerusalem. But I suggested that all of those assemblies weren't actually the real thing. They were training exercises. And their primary purpose was to educate men and women about the means that God would use to remake a broken world. But those assemblies were not actually the real thing. And the reason I said that is because the Old Testament ends with a renewed scattering of the people of God to Babylon. And so we find that throughout the rest of the Bible, Babylon is a symbol of human pride and scattering. So last week we ended in a state of suspense. We were waiting for the moment when those training exercises would come to an end and be replaced by the real thing. And uh, the passage that Ian has just read for us from the book of Hebrews gives us a vital clue. Because, you see, Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who knew their Old Testament Bibles better than me and possibly better than you as well. And in that passage, the writer wants us to understand the significance of the local church. So please put your eye on verse 18 of chapter 12, where he says, you have not come to dot, 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 and then in verses 18 to 21, he describes the experience at Mount Sinai. So, friends, what we're being told is that although Mount Sinai is a picture of the Christian assembly, because it's a gathering of the people of God under the word of God, it's not actually the real thing. Because Hebrews says that when the local church gathers, we have not come to Mount Sinai. And so this morning we move from the assembly at Sinai to the assembly of Jesus. 
The assembly at Sinai was the training exercise. The assembly of Jesus is the real thing. And this is where God's promise to remake a broken world starts to become concrete. Now this morning, we're going to spend most of our time at the foot of the cross. But I want to start by focusing on the earthly ministry of Jesus before the cross. Because, of course, his earthly ministry was absolutely radical, and especially his ministry of gathering. I wonder if you remember at one point that the Lord Jesus said, he who does not gather with me scatters. Do you remember that? Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. See, one of the distinctive features of the earthly ministry of Jesus was gathering. He gathered disciples. In fact, if you think about it, he called the strangest bunch of people to follow him. Hot-tempered men, like James and John, whom he called the sons of thunder. Or uh, Simon the Zealot, who was a political radical. Uh, Today, we would describe him as a terrorist. Jesus called all kinds of strange people. He called them, he gathered them to himself. And then those that he gathered, to them, Jesus said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now, don't underestimate that. That wasn't simply an invitation to enroll in a sort of discipleship program. Now, I think a helpful way to think about this is to say that Jesus was rather like a magnet. A magnet, if you did science at school, you'll know this, a magnet draws iron filings to itself, and then it magnetizes those iron filings so that they, in turn, attract others. So the principle in the earthly ministry of Jesus is that Jesus gathers, and those that he gathers then begin to gather with him. And we mustn't escape the fact, we mustn't ignore the fact that the kind of people Jesus gathered were not the kind of people you and I would expect. He gathered marginal people. Uh, He gathered people who were obviously sinful. Tax collectors, prostitutes, And that was such a hallmark of the ministry of Jesus that he was known as the friend of sinners, wasn't he? So Jesus gathers, that's what Jesus does, but the people that Jesus gathers were pretty much the same as the people at the Tower of Babel. So just as, do you remember those people at the Tower of Babel, they were full of selfish ambition, they wanted to make a name for themselves, well, the disciples of Jesus, to begin with, well, they were exactly the same. I'm sure you remember from the Gospels that on one occasion the disciples were discussing amongst themselves, who's the greatest among us? Who's the most important? We want to make a name for ourselves. So think about this. Jesus gathered around him people who initially were Tower of Babel people. But then, he did something in them. But before we look at what he did in them and for them, 
we've got to remember that gathering was not all that Jesus did. Because there were times, you remember, when Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And there was a time when, standing over Jerusalem, he said, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. So before we go any further, we just need to remember that there were plenty of people who were not willing to be gathered into the assembly of Jesus. Who were they? Well, they were the proud. They were the unrepentant. They were the people who thought they didn't need a doctor. Uh, The people who thought they were clean, who thought they were good or respectable or upright. And they refused to be gathered. And that means that we we can already see that the The assembly of Jesus Christ consists of those people who know they need a doctor, who know they need forgiveness, who know that they are sinners. And the only people who are excluded from the assembly of Jesus are people who don't know that. Now, the question I want to ask at this point is, Well, is their exclusion, is that exclusion fair? I mean, why does Jesus call one sinner but not another? And to answer that, I want to draw your attention to two, just two, characteristics of the assembly of Jesus. And then at the end, suggest some applications for us this morning. So first, it's very important for us to grasp that the assembly of Jesus is a gathering under the cross. You see, until the cross, all of the gathering that Jesus did during his earthly ministry was, quite frankly, unintelligible. Because until the cross, you looked at Jesus being the friend of sinners and welcoming people who were obviously seriously moral and spiritual failures. And you had to say to yourself, well, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? How can he possibly welcome people like that into the family of God? After all, you remember from last week that at Mount Sinai, um, that because of their sin, Israel were not allowed to get too close They weren't even allowed to touch the mountain. And uh, the application we took away from that, if you remember, was that if you and I try to force our way into the presence of God, we would be burned up by God's consuming fire of holiness and perfection. So how come Jesus is bringing these strange people in and treating them as sons and daughters of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. Well, before we come to Hebrews, I want to just take you to a couple of other verses that I think explain the point. Keep a finger in Hebrews 12. Turn left in your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Gospel of John. It's a fascinating little episode. John, chapter 11. 
verse 49, please. And while you're turning there, let me tell you that what's happening here is that a man called Caiaphas and the Jewish leaders are talking about how they're going to get rid of Jesus. Look at verse 49. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you than one, that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Now pause on that. Caiaphas there is making a political statement. And what Caiaphas is saying is, look, it would be better if this tiresome imposter and troublemaker, Jesus, were killed rather than we allow him to start a rebellion that would bring the Romans in and the Romans would then crush the nation. But then John inserts his own comment, verse 51. Verse 51, John says, Caiaphas did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Now, what John is saying there is that when Caiaphas spoke, he said something that was a whole lot more true than he actually realized. You see, John says, doesn't he, that Caiaphas prophesied. That means Caiaphas said what God wanted him to say. And therefore, the full God-given meaning of what he said is that Jesus will die in order to bring together the scattered children of God and make them one. That is the message that God put into the mouth of Caiaphas, that the reason Jesus died was to gather scattered people. And Jesus himself said almost the same thing. Turn over one page, chapter 12 of John's Gospel, verse 32. Can we all see verse 32 in chapter 12 in our Bibles? Jesus himself says, but I, when I am lifted up, meaning when I'm lifted up on the cross, will draw all men to myself. That is to say, all men and women, without distinction of race or gender or religious track record or culture or privilege. And the logic is that if we ask, you know, how can God remake a broken world? Well, he can only do it if he first punishes the sin and the sinners of that broken world. He must do that. And so, on the cross, God took that on himself in the person of Jesus. And because he took that wrath upon himself at the cross, because of that, the cross is the only place where a broken world can be regathered to almighty God. And friends, the fundamental reason why some people would not be gathered then is exactly the same 
as the reason some people will not be gathered now. It is that the cross was and is offensive to human pride. Because you see, the cross says, doesn't it, that the only way we can be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another is if God himself, in the person of his son, dies for us to pay the price. And there's absolutely nothing that you and I can contribute towards that. So have you got the picture? The cross is the only place where the nations of the world can be truly united. And the local church is a picture of that. The assembly of Jesus is a gathering under the cross. Secondly, the assembly of Jesus is a gathering under grace. Last week we saw that it's, the local church is, is, is um, a gathering under the word of God. That means the local church never puts itself above the word of God. If you find yourself in a church that does that, please leave it immediately. Very unhelpful. We've got to be extremely careful to avoid twisting or distorting God's word uh, to make God say things he hasn't said in order to justify our disobedience. We mustn't do that. That's idolatry. It leads to scattering. Rather, the assembly of Jesus gathers under the authority of God's word. But this morning, I want us to see that the local church is also a gathering under grace. So do you remember, um, after the cross and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, do you remember that the disciples were scattered? Read about that in the book of Acts. And actually, there's a wonderful paradox there. Because the scattering of the disciples as they were persecuted recorded for us in the Acts of the Apostles, was actually a scattering that brought grace to the world, wasn't it? Because as the disciples went out, scattered under persecution, what did they do? They preached the gospel and they gathered lost people. Dear Gift is about to be scattered from this congregation. He's going to be scattered back to Matari in Zimbabwe, where he's going to plant a church. What's he going to do in that church? He's going to gather. He's going to gather. And all over the world, there are these scattered gatherings. But they're all gatherings under grace. So come to Hebrews 12, because I want to show you why this is so. Now, don't be frightened. We're not going to unpack the whole passage. I just want to highlight one thing that takes us right to the heart of the matter. The writer here is describing what's really going on, what's really happening when the local church gathers. In other words, he's describing spiritual reality. And you'll see what that reality is if you come with me to verse 22, Hebrews 12, verse 22, where the writer says, when the local church gathers, you have come to Mount Zion. So you haven't come to Mount Sinai, place of terror, uh, the place where you didn't have access to God, the place where you had to keep your distance. No, not that. Rather, when you gather as a local church, you've come to Mount Zion. Now, friends, that's picture language. Um, 
He says, you've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the city of the living God. So it's not a city in the Middle East. It's a Bible reality. And he goes on to say, you've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn. Now, that's a reference, of course, I'm sure some of you know, to the Passover and that extraordinary night when the destroyer was not able to touch the firstborn of Israel. Do you remember that in the story of the Exodus? Because they were all sheltering under what? The blood of a lamb, weren't they? And in the New Testament, the New Testament picks that idea up. And the firstborn is a way of talking about all those people who are shielded, who are covered by the blood of the Passover lamb who died in their place. And specifically in verse 23, the church of the firstborn is referring to all believers who trust in the blood of Jesus, who is the true Passover lamb. And then in the middle of verse 23, the writer says something of staggering importance. He says, since you walked into St. Barnabas this morning, this is what's been happening behind the scenes. He says, you've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and now here it comes, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So when believers gather in the local church, we have the access to Almighty God that the people of Israel at Mount Sinai didn't have. And the reason we have this access is because the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, we've got some Bible college students here. What text in the Old Testament is that referring to? Somebody tell me. I know you're in the... Pardon? Genesis 4, brilliant. Top marks, distinction. Genesis 4, Cain murders Abel. And Genesis 4 says that after the murder, the blood of Abel cried out to God from the ground for justice. Now, for us gathered here this morning, the blood of Abel represents all the people you and I have harmed. We might not have murdered anybody, but can anybody here this morning honestly say you've never harmed anybody? I can't. I'm sure you can't. We've harmed lots of people, even this past week. And the harm, the harm that you and I have done to them, cries out to God for justice. It cries out against us. And to stay with the analogy for a moment, if that is the only blood that God hears, well, you and I are in trouble. Because you see, all of us through our lives, either by the harm we have done to people 
or by the good we could have done for other people but didn't do it. That is, as it were, blood crying out to God for justice against us. I wonder if you've ever thought about your life like that. But praise God. The sprinkled blood of the Passover lamb, the blood of Jesus, sprinkled as it were on the doorposts of our hearts, calls out to God with a better word. It calls out that the penalty's been paid. It says, here are men and women whose guilt is perfectly and completely covered by the blood of Jesus. There's nothing more to pay. Justice has been done. And because of that, we can, each one of us, draw near to God and have unrestricted access to him. And therefore, there can also be peace between us. That is the definition of the assembly of Jesus. It's the assembly of all those people who have access to God because of his grace. Now, now's the interesting bit. I want to apply all of this to us as a congregation. And it's my prayer that as I do this, that we'll start to see, perhaps in a way that we've never seen before, that the most significant thing we can do with our lives is serving in and belonging to a local church. Now, I know, you don't have to tell me, I know there are plenty of people out there who will say that that's a stupid suggestion. Now, there are far more helpful and useful things we could do than belonging to a church. But I want to emphasize it this morning because, you see, we, listen to me carefully, we ourselves will begin to doubt this when things go wrong within the church fellowship. And from time to time, things will go wrong in every local church because every local church is a mixture of the heavenly Jerusalem and Babylon. But here are three things that can and must be evident in every local church. And when they are, these things can actively begin to rebuild our broken world and our broken communities. The first is that every local church is an assembly of men and women who are humbled under grace. So we've learned that the Tower of Babel community were defined by pride. And we also know in our own hearts that by nature we are tower builders. We want to build a name for ourselves. The assembly of Jesus is defined by humility. Because in order to get in, we did nothing. Jesus did everything. We've received grace. That means we can't boast. In Paul's letter to the Romans, there's a very important passage. You don't need to turn to it. It's chapter 3, verse 21 and following, where Paul talks about the cross. And he says that when Jesus died, God's white-hot wrath against our sin was diverted from us and fell on Jesus instead. And he makes this comment, verse 27, Romans 3, where then is boasting? It is excluded. 
So the local church is an assembly of men and women who are all humbled under grace. And it's by that humbling that a broken world can begin to be remade. Secondly, the local church is inclusive under grace. That means that the local church is an assembly that welcomes anybody. No matter who they are, no matter what they've done, we welcome anybody and everybody who knows that they need a doctor. Anybody who will come to the foot of the cross and join us there. And maybe this is the most important thing I'm going to say this morning, so just pinch yourself if you've wandered away to Sunday lunch. We are not saying to the world, we are better than you. We are saying we are complete no-hopers spiritually. So please come and join us as a bunch of spiritual no-hopers. Come and be another no-hoper with us, if you like, at the foot of the cross, which is the only place where real hope is to be found. Remember, there's a place where the Apostle Paul says that when Jesus came into our world, he made himself nothing. And it was because Jesus made himself nothing that he was able to gather nobodies like me, people without status or track record, and welcome them into his assembly. Just one cautionary comment. When we say that we are inclusive... We do need to be clear that that is not the inclusivity of political correctness. Because I know, and you know perfectly well, that inclusivity today means that everyone should be welcomed, irrespective of anything and everything. No, the inclusivity that we're talking about is the inclusivity that can only be found at the foot of the cross under grace. It's an inclusivity for anybody who will bow down and repent and who will turn from their sin and say, I need a doctor. I need the sprinkled blood. I need forgiveness. Do you want to think of it this way? It's a bit like going through a doorway which has got no step up, but it has got an extremely low ceiling. Uh, As you probably know, most human clubs in Cape Town, have a very big step up. Um, When I applied for membership of the local golf club, they wanted to know all kinds of things about my background, my education, my sporting background, my financial means, and various other things. Most human clubs want to know that you're good enough, talented enough, rich enough. The Christian church has got no conditions to satisfy None before you join it. There's no step. The only thing we must do is bow down and admit we need a doctor. So the local church is inclusive under grace in a way that no other community in the world can be. And that welcoming inclusiveness has supernatural power to remake a broken world. Thirdly, lastly, very briefly, 
The local church is a place where we learn forgiveness under grace. It's a place where the Apostle Paul says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. See, if we've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, the Passover lamb, we have been forgiven far more by Almighty God than we will ever be called upon to forgive in another human being. So when the Apostle Peter asks Jesus, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Jesus uh, says, not seven times, but 77 times. That's, That's not a number, that's a principle. Jesus is saying when somebody wrongs you and they repent, there is no limit to the number of times you are to forgive them. You go on doing it. And the forgiveness is to be complete. There's to be no keeping of uh, records of of past wrongs because God doesn't do that with us. He remembers our sins no more. And that's why in the local church there is this, this dynamic of forgiveness which can remake a broken world. This is what they need in the Middle East at the moment, isn't it? Can you see, friends, can you see that these three characteristics, humility, inclusivity, forgiveness, all of them flow from the cross. And they flow into a local church assembly that is gathered together under the cross. Now, I know the local church is never going to do these things perfectly because our humility is frequently spoiled by pride, Uh, inclusivity often undermined by hidden prejudice we haven't dealt with, and forgiveness frequently contradicted by revenge. So yes, the local church will always be a slightly ambiguous place. But I do want us to understand that despite that ambiguity, the medicine of God's grace is always powerfully at work. And the wonder is not that we don't always get along together and that we sometimes fall out. The wonder is that we ever do get along together. I mean, that actually is the marvellous thing. So rejoice when we do. Don't be surprised when it gets a bit difficult. But above all, don't lose sight of the reality that the local church is the place where God is remaking a broken world and that what happens here is of huge significance for the perfectly restored world yet to come. Well, let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we praise you that when you came to earth, you gathered hopeless cases like us and you said you would build your church and we praise you for every experience we have of your grace at work in this fellowship and above all we praise you for the sprinkled blood that you have applied to the hearts and lives of everyone 
who has surrendered their lives to you as Saviour and Lord. And we pray that our relationships with one another might be shaped more and more by the cross and that people outside would see it and would be drawn to you, Lord Jesus, for you are the light of the world. Amen.